Welcome to Imperfect Action. This is Brock Edwards. And of course, this is the show where we're looking for ideas, information, inspiration on how do we get out of our own way? How do we get unstuck? How do we move forward? How do we play bigger, do better, move the world? And so today's guest is Daniel Teitelbaum. Daniel, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thank you for having me, Brock. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, who am I? Well, I, I, I guess my background is in philosophy and I, I did a law degree and I studied some performing arts and a, a bit of all over the place. Um, and I did a lot of work in education. But over the last couple of years, I guess I, I've come to a point where um, I'm focusing on this word play and trying to figure out uh, all the different things that it, uh, people have written about it or the way it expresses itself in the world. Um, and in studying this thing called play, um, as I've been doing over the last, let's say, two, three years, um, I then try to apply what I learn in the real world. And it's been a magnificent journey of finding powerful, useful, uh, fun tools for, um, yeah, I guess all, of, all that you say, playing bigger, doing better, moving the world, connecting people, being better at our work and our relationships and our relationship to self our creativity, all of this, um, there's a, a secret underlying element to how we engage with the world and think and, and do things and, and plays that secret element. So that's right. what I've been doing, studying it, figuring out what it is, looking across gaming and performing arts and science and therapy and philosophy and wherever that intersects with this idea of play um, and just seeing what people say, write or think about it. Um, and it's been really, really interesting, really fun, and, and also very useful. So it's been great. Well, I've actually got a lot of questions there. But first, I've got to ask, so philosophy, law, and performing arts all coming yeah. together in one person. How did that happen? Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I started the, um, at, at uh, in Melbourne, uh, Monash University. Um, you can do a, a lot of people do a double degree where they'll do like an arts degree and um, with their law degree. I got into law degree, so I had to do it because, well, because of my parents mostly <laughs> um, and my friends and the peer pressure and the, well, you got in, you got to do the right thing, have a proper career kind of thought. Um, and then I did the philosophy just for fun. Um, but then after about a couple of years of being at uni, I ended up working at a place called the School of Life, uh, which is all about practical everyday philosophy, conversations about life's big themes and ideas, but um, yeah, between real people in the real world. And so I started working in this kind of practical philosophy space um, and the law became the thing that I finished so that I would have ticked that box and got my parents off my back and had a fallback. Um, but it ended up being the philosophy that took me into this kind of philosophy slash adult education world. Um, and then through that and other experiences I'd had in, in running um, uh, after school programs for kids. So education, but through play, had to be through play because it was all for, um, you know, uh, kids who are from uh, lower, like let's say year three or, or eight years old all the way up to 18 years old. Uh, and so that was all education through play for community groups. And so, yeah, I guess the philosophy in education for adults and the play in education for kids um, came together after my time at the School of Life in about uh, yeah, start of 2018. Uh, and I found this play thing as being the most powerful tool for education and for um, just general creativity and thinking. Uh, and when it comes even to adult education, if it wasn't playful, um, it was probably not going to even not going to have much of an effect on how they think or behave. So um, play became this really important, fascinating part of everything that I'd been doing. So kind of, yeah, that's, that's how it happened. <laughs> Well, what does play do for us? That's a good question. I guess I would say, what does sleep do for us? 
to you? What would you tell me sleep does for us? Well, it allows us to rest, heal, recuperate, kind of reset, I think. Kind of, yeah. kind of, like, kind of like when you reboot the computer, you know, it gets rid of all the, the clutter. Yeah, that's right. Um, it does all that. And it's also uh, essential, right? If you stop sleeping for a certain amount of time, eventually you would either die or hallucinate or whatever it is that it'd be bad, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the same with eating and the same with not exercising. So this is the kind of place, uh, the position I give play um, or you know, from what I've read of other people as well. Um, I guess this is how deep and fundamental our drive to play is. It's kind of as important and fundamental as our drive to sleep, eat, find shelter. Um, without it, without, and, and yeah, without those things, those other things, obviously very clear and bad things happen. Um, it's not as clear and obvious to see what happens when we don't play, but the studies have shown that with an extreme play deficit, or uh, uh, extreme lack of play or play deprivation um, in early childhood, but also at any stage in life, um, leads to uh, depression, antisocial behavior, um, even uh, behavior of violence towards other people. Um, and so this isn't like, oh, okay, if somebody doesn't play enough in their adult life, they're just going to turn around and be a psychopath tomorrow. Um, but there is a very, very strong um, role that play has in um, media, mo helping us navigate emotions, um, work through emotions, uh, work through, I guess, challenging scenarios where we need to take a different perspective or see the light side. Um, a sense of humour is essential for getting through really challenging times. It's not just a, a Band-Aid solution. It, it really is like gallows humor or laughing in dire situations as there are lots of stories of people in, in tough scenarios do um, these are all a part of how our, our, our drive to play our need to play um, uh, and our ability to play kind of help us get through all of life and do life better so does that make sense it does and you've given me a few examples already when you talked about the the sense of humor but what does play look like for adults because I know what play looks like for kids yeah and so when you say, you know, we talk about play in the business world, I think a lot of people go to, well, I know how my kids play, but that's not what we do yeah. here. Yeah, that's right. So the play, the, and that's part of the uh, stigma or stereotype of play. Um, it, the reason why play is associated so much with childhood is because it's when we do our most playing and it's because play is very much a part of our learning and development, um, our empathy the skill of empathy is through um, even at, uh, when we get when we're born and you start to make faces at um, uh, a, a baby and the baby make makes faces back to you. That's a type of play that Dr. Stuart Brown, who writes a lot about play, calls attunement play. Um, and it's where we even begin to understand there are other people in the world, there are other faces in the world, um, the circuits of empathy in our brain, wherever they are, um, start to form. And so even from, from the beginning, it's about empathy and understanding other people and we need it. Um, but then as we, and so we play a lot as kids, we need it, we need it to, for all those reasons. And then when we start to get to adolescence, we think plays for children, not for adults. I need to, and I want to be an adult, I need to start moving towards um, non-play ish stuff. Um, but play doesn't have to look like running around, jumping around with balloons and streamers and playing chase. Um, play can be Sudoku. Um, and if somebody starts every morning with, let's say, Sudoku or a crossword or whatever it is, it's, it's a relaxing thing. It can also be a, bra a brain sharpening thing. Um, it can be just about the deep engagement of a puzzle. 
things like that. So it can look at a whole lot of different ways, but it can also just be a type of thinking, an approach to a creative or in, uh, innovation. We have to do a lot of innovation in business. Um, if you describe to me an innovation process without any element of play, I'd be very surprised that you would actually have described an innovation process. Um, play is about recasting our view of the world, looking at it from different angles. Um, so play is a part of the innovation process. Um, if you're a leader and you want to have people in your team feel a part of a team um, or to feel like or provide mechanisms for their creative contribution, um, if you turn to the world of play for structures or ideas or ways to do that, that's going to be the richest source of great ways to get a team uh, or, or even have a leader, lead a team uh, in the right way um, to navigate the different uh, social connections within a team. Um, play, uh, play type experiences, and it doesn't have to be fun or feel fun or, or, you know, run around. Even if you just use the tools or structures from game design, for example, you'll have ways of, um, yeah, uh, you'll have insight into how you can lead better, work better, innovate better in, in your workplace. So it's about finding the things in the world of play and adapting them to the business context. Not about just taking the play thing and shoving it into the business uh, environment. It's about what does this thing in the, let's say this game design thing have to offer us in our particular context. And that translation process is actually, that's the essence of my work is to, is to translate that or, or do that adapting. So what does a day in the life of your work look like? Uh, yeah, so I'll, um, I'll have, I'll be contacted by somebody at some point to say, hey, we're working on a particular project and the breadth is, is quite a wide variety of things. It could be we're opening a cafe and we want to think about how customers move through the cafe. And there's like service design stuff that I do through game design, just because I think game design seems to offer a more comprehensive understanding of how people make choices in a, in a system. So, so, you know, I'll, I'll take some, a game design structure and apply it to that particular scenario. Uh, or actually this week I'm running a workshop for grandparents to play online with their grandkids. So that's about helping them during this isolation period, find a way to connect and, and, and be able to, yeah, play with their grandchildren. But my job there is to find the best tools for them to, um, do that without, let's say I have to think about what if they can't access a browser, um, or they can only use their phone. Um, or they can have no video or they do have video or whatever it is. And how old are they and how tech savvy are they, both the child and the grandparent? So my job there is also finding out how do we, nav how do we navigate through all those different constraints and find, um, uh, give them some examples of things that they can actually do. Uh, and then also I think that that project is going to probably include a bit of a follow-up with a Facebook group so that they can um, check in with each other and me and say, hey, this is how this is going and I can give advice. So that's not a work context. That's a and with a mental health organization. Um, so that's that example. Um, but then, yeah, in other work contexts, it could be even um, providing a Lego serious play session where we use Lego blocks to uh, describe ideas to each other, show each other ideas, collaborate on ideas. And it's a great tool just for coming up with ideas and communicating about them. Um, so that, that, that's, those are a few examples. I guess also I'll come in and I can just do the general team building stuff. But um, yeah, for the more specific things, I'll find the right tool within the play world. Um, I know another good example, fun one was that I was doing a brand values exercise for a, a 
company the other day called Tixel. They resell um, tickets online to music festivals and events. And they a new company and they hadn't got their brand values yet. Normally brand values go and they sit on a wall and it's like, we are honest and we are fun and we, are, um, uh, we go over and above and we are brave or whatever the set of values are. Um, and normally they sit on a wall somewhere and they don't actually mean much. So I used a particular theatre style developed by a Brazilian theatre director in the 70s, um, and it's called Forum Theatre, and it allows uh, spectators in the theatre context to give their input as to how they think the play is going, ask actors to do it again, get up and get involved and do it themselves if they feel like it. So we role-played very specific work scenarios that they generated, and then we got the, the audience, which was the you know, rest of the team um, as they were role-playing a scenario to say, all right, well, how is this actually putting our value of honesty into this scenario? And like, well, it's not. It's like, okay, well, in this scenario, you're talking to a supplier, let's say, and they've asked you a piece of information. That information might be confidential but important to them. You have to make a decision about whether the honesty means that we tell our suppliers this particular information. So the idea was to get as kind of granular um, and collaborative in the role play process as possible so that when they see their value on the wall honesty they know that actually means a very specific thing in a very specific scenario so um, and it turns up what I've called brand values it turns them into uh, brand virtues values in action so that was an idea of how theatre can help us um, really get a solid and practical sense of this abstract notion in in work like values that normally don't mean much so that was that's I guess another example well, what misunderstandings do you find that people have about play when you think about like the work context? It, it, exactly what you, what you, how you started where you said, you know, it looks like kids fun running around balloons and streamers. Um, but I would say it's about using ideas, structures, systems or, or processes from the play world um, that provide really unique insight in the work context. Where do people get stuck when they're they're trying to play? Because, yeah. you know, we, we know it's a good thing. I mean, you, you mentioned yeah. like play. It's, it's enjoyable and we like to do things that are enjoyable. Yeah. What, where do we get in our own way there? Yeah, it's a good question. The first is in we're self-conscious. We think this is not... Uh, is not what adults do. So the, fir the first thing that I, I guess, here's what I do, which is to remedy where we get stuck. Um, I provide an intellectual justification for why we're playing. So normally people are like, well, play is frivolous and pu purposeless and we're very goal-oriented in this world. Um, one of the, actually ran a series of workshops, now free to the public, about for playing in isolation. And one of them was playing uh, without purpose. So being able to sit in a state of goalless or purposeless pursuit and a lot of people went into isolation saying I'm going to write my book or I'm going to do this and that's all good it's great to have those kind of pursuits but um, I was trying to encourage people to just kind of sit in a, in a state of not having to do much it's very good for the your mental health um, so in the work context that's even heightened so I have to provide the intellectual justification for doing things that might seem playful and not super serious um, and also give people permission to um, yeah, to, to a act in different ways that they're not used to in, in front of their colleagues. So the first part is that intellectual justification for what we're doing and the permission that they're allowed to be involved in it. Um, and from there, the next step is to, uh, that, doesn't, that just means that they might be okay with the idea in principle, but now we have to embody it. And so people um, can get very self-conscious in the way they move. Um, and as we get older, the way we move actually gets now smaller. We move in fewer and fewer ways, let's say. We kind of get, you know what I mean? Like kind of trapped in our body. 
Um, and so he, I, I start with, and movement is kind of a very important part of starting to play and think and work with other people. We need to start moving again. So I do a few movement-based exercises where they end up moving in very strange and silly ways without ever realizing that they're going to or having to choose to. I kind of use a, 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 an activity that takes all the ego out of feeling self-conscious or silly about how you move. Um, and then I guess, yeah, by then uh, people are feeling a lot more able to, to play and express themselves. So that kind of groundwork at the very start is really important, the intellectual and physical easing into a, a play session. Um, but those are the big, big obstacles where they're not used to it, um, they don't feel like they have the permission to do it, it doesn't feel like it's necessarily valuable, even though it is. Um, it, th there's a very narrow understanding of what play actually includes. It's not um, running around it, it can also it can be very serious. So yeah, all of those I guess are a part of a part of the obstacles or things that that get us stuck. Um, yeah, and the movement is a really really big part of it. But yeah. yeah so tell me more about that because when you said that our movement becomes restricted, so the first yeah. thing that went through my mind is actually totally unrelated, but you might be able to relate to this. So yeah. I used to do a lot of work with summer camps, and oh, yeah. at the start of the year, there's like you know, hundreds and hundreds of songs that everyone sings. By the time you get to August, you know, the end of the summer season, there's like three that they sing. Like, you know, it just drops off as, as the summer progresses. Yeah. And, you know, it just kind of becomes this super narrow focus, not intentionally, not no one mm -hmm. consciously weeded it out. It's just at the end, you're only hearing three songs where at the beginning there was, you know, this whole songbook. And yeah. so I can, I can imagine that with movement just as we get older that, yeah. Know, we do fewer and fewer activities um, or at least there's less variety in those activities and, you know, stuff just drops off because, um, yeah. you know, when I watch my kids play, they're, they're, they're climbing and they're jumping and they're doing yeah. all these things that, you know, I'll do if I have to, but it's not really a normal part of my day. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and yeah, be, be, because of that, and that's natural, that happens to every adult, you just move in, in, in less ways. But the connection between, I guess this is my, where we might get into a conversation of, of um, consciousness, but we don't have to go all the way there. But it, it's that the body, the body is a part of the brain. Um, that was kind of as simple as I can put it, really. Um, it, it, if we, we don't think just, just in the brain, we think through the um, set of connections between this all of our synapses and the, uh, uh, we, yeah, that's kind of um, one way of seeing how the mind and body work together, that it's not two separate uh, entities. Uh, and if that's the case, then a greater range of movement is the same thing as a greater range of uh, mental flexibility uh, or a part of it. And so, and there are lots of philosophers that even write about the fact that I think Nietzsche and Charles Darwin also um, said how important walking is to thinking. Um, I think Nietzsche even said that there's no, good thinking that hasn't come during walking or movement. Um, and so, yeah, um, uh, movement is a big part of that. And moving in different ways is a, is a big part of that. Um, the person who, who I'm referring to talks about this is a man named Augusto Boal. And he, he teaches, he taught movement even as a kind of literacy, um, an important literacy, a physical literacy, uh, and just as important as a, a verbal literacy. So if you, yeah, there are lots of ways to think about the importance of movement, but absolutely it's a part of how we think, um, how we, even emotional regulation helps through physical movement. So yeah, it's super, super important. And, and also it's the beginning of play. It's how we get back into play. Other writers have wrote, written about the importance of movement as the beginning of overcoming our fear of play. You know, I've never thought about it the way you just put it. And I really like that. 
um, you know, yes, there is this mind body connection. In fact, uh, you know, they're, they're probably not as separate as we've tried to make them. Uh, they're yeah. easy, to, easy to think about separate, but there is so much connection back and forth. But I've never, um, never heard it put that way where the greater range of, or the, would you say, yeah, the greater range of movement equals a greater range of thinking, basically. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some, what are some movements or some things that, and maybe it can't be broken down like this, but you know, that how would you recommend that people move in order to expand the way they're thinking? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the particular exercise I do in the workshop context kind of relies on a few people. Um, um, uh, but it, I, we can borrow from instead from the world of even improvisation. So in improv, you might have, uh, there's a game called I Am A Tree. Have you heard that or played that? No. Um, um, it's somebody stands, in, you've got a group of people around and um, somebody stands in the middle and pretends to be a tree and then somebody has to um, join the scene. They go, oh, I'm a, I'm a kite and they'll pretend to, they'll physically embody a, a kite and they'll pretend to be stuck in the tree and somebody might say, oh, I'm a dog and they'll come and pee on the tree, let's say. Um, and... Um, but imitating physical objects. So I can, it, it's hard if you're with um, part of what I have to do is help get over the self-consciousness of movement. And um, in the workshop context with me there, it's obviously a lot easier, but I guess it, doing it at home for yourself, you'll have to overcome that sense of self-consciousness yourself. And that could be just be private, be in a room by yourself. Don't, you know, where you won't get interrupted um, and uh, find the different range and ways of moving. You can imitate objects. You can um, just follow the curiosity of can my body move in that way? Um, whatever it is that just puts putting you into physical positions that you're not used to, obviously you're not trying to hurt yourself or, you know, go over the top. Um, but yeah, it's an important, it's, it, yeah, that, that's just one way, I guess. Um, and that, Another is, is walk a lot. Walk when take regular. I recommend um, taking lots and lots of very sh of short walking breaks during the working day. Um, walk for five minutes in between each task. Um, walk for twenty minutes at the end. You know, in the uh, half an hour in the middle of the day and ten minutes at the end of the day. The kind of as long as you keep keep with movement. And also another one is actually in work is you. You can move um, as you work if you do things like post-it notes. So post-it notes, people love the color and you can throw it, move ideas around. Post-it notes I like is because I, I, what I end up doing is I end up like moving a lot more as I put them up on a wall and then go back to the desk and then go up on the wall. And, that, and I find that, um, yeah, just literally anywhere you, anywhere you can find movement um, is a good place to, to find it and, and yeah, include it in your routine. All right. So we don't all have to become experts at parkour or, you know, no, gymnastics or anything like that. No, not at all. Um, I even, I, I, I remember hearing of a, of a play facilitator who used to start every um, uh, session by getting people to lie on the floor and stare up at it at the table from underneath. Cause I don't usually see that perspective. And that's about play as a matter of helping you perspective, um, change perspective. And there's other great thoughts and stuff around that. But even like, like that little routine meant that, you know, you have to get on the ground, you have to lie down, you have to get up off the ground. I mean, that doesn't necessarily change your range of movement too much, but any, any movement you can add within, within the whole thing is, is great. All right. So that's one way people can get started. So what if, what if people do want to bring more play into their lives, into the workplace? You know, it's a little awkward to go back Monday morning and say, hey, everyone, you know, let's start yeah. playing. Yeah. What, what are the words they should be using? Is there a different word than play that would yeah. that people don't, you know, get the, the mental picture wrong? 
Yeah, I'd say, um, well, so I, I just kind of started to touch on there of changing perspective. Um, and one thing you can do in the, one very valuable thing to do in your work is to think about your tasks or problems from the perspective of a different person or industry or different expertise. Um, so you go, you know, let's say you're working in, uh, retail or whatever, and you might think, uh, and you're running a retail business and you might think, how would a, um, let's say a dairy farmer approach this? Um, and it's a hard thing to do, you know, this is a hard exercise, but you, you might say, okay, well, what's their context? They've got cows and, um, you know, they've got a, a range cow. Well, how do they do? They tag them. Maybe I'll tag my employees. I just came up with a really shitty, silly example. Um, but the idea is that if you, you think you, playful thinking, um, which is kind of the name I use for my organization, um, isn't just, is about finding new ways of thinking to give further insight into the, the other thing you're thinking about. Um, so I would say, hey, let's, 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 play with, let's play with ideas is often a really good way to start in the work context. Um, another, and I guess part, a really easy one is, I, I mentioned Lego before. Lego have a method called Lego Serious Play. It's been around for probably since 2010 or a bit before, I think. So 10 years or so. Um, and it is a really, really great uh, tool for communication and collaboration around ideas. Um, it's just by using Lego bricks to build what your um, yeah what what it is you're thinking about. And normally there's a facilitator who prompts with specific questions. Lots of ways to use the Lego in that context. Um, but it's used by huge companies all over the world. That process. So that's a, an easy one to kind of Lego's well known. Lego's fun and easy. It's clear how valuable it can be when you're doing it as a way of expressing ideas and working on them together. Um, so something even as simple as that. And then I, I start small and kind of make uh, and kind of keep it going, I'd say is the best way to bring play into your work, a small and useful thing. And then, um, yeah, there's just so much out there that you can, you can look to, to bring into, into, into your workplace. So where can people learn more about bringing play into the workplace or into their lives? Are there particular yeah. authors or... Yeah, there are heaps. So I've tried to put a library, a bit of a library together on my, on my website, and I'm going to add to that. Um, and there are some that are very specific. So From Workplace to Play Space is a book by Pamela Meyer, and it's about creating the right environment of play in your workplace, um, which, and it's called, about, it's called Innovating, Learning, and Changing Through Dynamic Engagement is the um, kind of byline there. And so if I'd say, I mean, play is innovation or if you say I want to innovate you can say great well let's find some playful methods because that's what you require for innovating you need to think in different ways um, and this, the essence of play is to um, I guess uh, not subvert but it really is about how it, how can this be different um, it, it, innovation is the essence of play is you know what what happens if I change this um, and plays is it's, it's about learning and changing and, and you require the play environment um, so there's another thing, even just by play requires a trusting environment. It requires a safe environment where people feel like they can um, be themselves. And there's a bit of a chicken and egg thing going on where if you try to bring play into the workplace, it, it, it can really fail if it doesn't feel like a safe um, space. Um, but it can also help create a safe and trusting space between people. So finding the right kind of um, low barrier activities that people are going to um, 
enjoy and find a little bit of value in, even if it's just not too over the top, um, will just help to start to get momentum around creating that safety. Um, and, and as you create a, a safe, a trusting, connected group of people with a, with, who feel like they have the ability to be creative together, well, then you've got, a, an organiza- you've got what an organisation requires. It requires a group of connected people who can collaborate and be creative together. And the function or processes for doing that is play. The context is play for a connected, creative, collaborative group of people. Well, as you look around the world, what companies are getting it right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the big one that, uh, you know, has tried to set the bar for playful organiza- uh, companies is Google. Um, and um, I'll tell you where they get it right and where they get it wrong. So I've been to the Google offices in Sydney, Australia, and looked around. And obviously they've got the, like, the, the, um, they've got a Lego corner. They've got a games area. They've got even a recording studio for people to play music. They've got all kinds, like heaps and heaps and heaps of stuff um, for people to play with. Um, and then they've also got 20% time, um, which is where you spend 20% of your time working on anything you want. And all of the stuff in the office building, they've also got free food everywhere, I would say is absolutely minimal in its impact on how employees, uh, it might help employees feel like they're working in a great place, but I'm sure they're absolutely underutilized if utilized at all, um, and especially because people are so busy. But the 20% time, which is uh, mentioned earlier, the importance of purposeless activity, there's a paradox around doing something purposeless in the work context, and it's a paradox I'm comfortable with, but it is that you will almost always have something useful or valuable come out of time spent um, non-productively in air quotes um, in your work context. And there is so much, I don't know, the, I actually should go back and have a, make sure I get these concrete examples from Google's 20% time. But I remember reading ages ago about how much of Google's um, core product now emerged from a 20% time activity. And it's about, it's the paradox of purposelessness or non, not pursuing your work goal directly or going a playful, unnecessary route. And another definition of a game is an unnecessary activity or play is unnecessary. Some might consider it essential to play is that it's not for something valuable or purposeful. Um, but yet the paradox is always, always, always something, you know, eventually comes out of it that is super valuable because you've allowed to follow your curiosity without the pressure um, and with a f- greater freedom of thinking. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, I guess, another really, that's a good example of how Google get it right in some way around how the play works. Um, yeah, and then I guess, yeah, the other stuff is, is, is kind of more, it would be more difficult to see in some companies, and I haven't um, looked at all the examples. Oh, well, I th- even think Microsoft in, in Japan recently also um, actually went down in the amount of time people spend at work, and this is also similar to the impact that is happening in school system. Um, in some countries, uh, there's, uh, kids are spending less time in school and given less homework. And in both contexts, in where you're asked to spend less time actually working and less time studying, you're more productive at work and you're smarter and better results at school. And why is that? It's because play is this magical thing that when we spend less time focused on our activity and more time free, free and curious with our subconscious doing a lot of the work around um, how it's valuable. Um, yeah, we just, we work and live and, and do better when we provide more time for that playful endeavors and playful thinking and playful experiences. 
As we wrap up here, Daniel, um, where can people find you? Like if they want to find out more about you, what you do, resources around play, or I really like just the phrasing of being playful, Mm. um, where can they find you? They can find me at playfulthinking.com.au. Yeah, that's the best way to find me. Like, uh, And there's a link. If you want to find me on LinkedIn, there's a a link there um, and to other stuff. But yeah, playfulthinking.com.au. And I think also um, uh, just my, my, I guess, call to action for everybody is to um, think of play as a thing that you can look at or research or understand more about. Um, and in doing that, see how, you know, try some things. Try what, ha- what is this piece of advice about how play can help me and see, see how you go. Find, find your way to include more play in life. Excellent. Well, that seems like a good place to wrap up. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Daniel. Thanks, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here.